For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Welcome once again to our service of baptism and Holy Communion, and many thanks to uh, Pastor Wendell Gibbs and the congregation of First Baptist Church for hosting us for this service. For a baptism service, it's not surprising uh, that I chose a Bible text that mentions baptism by water, but it turns out the overall theme and uh, context of, of this text um, is about what I'm going to call baptism by fire. Our text from God's word this afternoon, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 22, that Harold read for us. Please have it handy uh, in your bulletins on page 4. We will also refer to Psalm 34 which is printed on the last page of your bulletins, uh, starting on page 19. But we will, we will start in the first Peter text. My sermon has two parts. First, verses 8 to 17, under the heading, Baptism by Fire, following the example of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And second, verses 18 to 22, under the heading, Baptism by Water, United in the Body of Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that was Baptism by Fire, following the example of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and Baptism by Water, United in the Body of Jesus Christ, our Savior. If we had our Pew Bibles here, you would see that the title given for the whole of this passage is Suffering for Righteousness' Sake. Suffering for Righteousness' Sake is the definition of persecution. When Peter wrote this letter, he was well acquainted with suffering as a Christian. And he wrote it to strengthen um, strengthen the, the uh, Christians who had suffered much already and were facing the prospect of suffering more. In fact, in um, chapter 4 of Peter's letter, verse 12, it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. It's from this reference that I chose um, my first heading, Baptism by Fire. You probably recognize uh, Baptism by Fire as a common English idiom. But that idiom may actually originate, at least in part, from this verse that I just read. Many English idioms come from the Bible. I sure learned that during my 10 plus years uh, leading ESL Bible studies. 
anyone in any, anyways in in part one of this uh, sermon we're looking at verses 8 to 17 under the heading baptism by fire following the example of Jesus Christ our lord this passage follows on uh, from the one that I, I preached uh, two months ago from, from 1 Peter. In that passage, Peter holds up Jesus Christ, our suffering Messiah, as not only our Savior, but also our example. Peter emphasizes the power of the witness to Jesus when his followers continue to do good even when they suffer for their association with Jesus. Peter points out that winning bystanders and even your persecutors, rather than retaliating against your persecutors, is the Jesus way. Our passage today continues in that vein. Peter advocates unity, love, and humility within the Christian community under attack and promises blessing for those who choose to bless their attackers. So verses 8 and 9 say, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, that is, do not trade insults, <laughs> but on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. This promise of blessing is then grounded in the wisdom teaching quoted from Psalm 34. Peter applies this teaching to his readers in their circumstances. The basic idea is that since, um, as verse 12 says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Since this is the case, the earlier verses exhort turning from evil speech and action and instead doing good. Verses 10 and 11 say this of the one who desires to live right before the Lord, both now and for eternity. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Following this quote, Peter asks the question in verse 13, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Now, this is a strange question in this context because it, it suggests that somehow it would be unlikely for one to suffer for doing good. But disciples of Jesus Christ follow a Messiah who suffered greatly and unjustly for doing the ultimate good. In asking this question, I, I think Peter is referring back to something that he said earlier. Back in chapter 2, Peter exhorted his readers to submit to human authorities, whose God-given job it is to punish those who do evil and praise those who do 
Good. That's what he said. But of course, as we well know, and Peter probably knew even better in the days of severe persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire, human authorities don't always do that job and indeed may do exactly the opposite. So Peter follows up in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. This is just what Jesus said at the conclusion of the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile or insult you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Before we continue in our passage, I, I want to take a brief look at Psalm 34, which Peter quoted from. So please turn to page 19, the last page in your, your bulletin. Psalm 34 is uh, so important in this, uh, in this letter, not only because Peter quotes from it here in our passage, uh, but also it seems to be in the background throughout his whole letter. A commentary I was reading on this uh, psalm called it an ABC for a crisis. An ABC for a crisis. The ABC refers to the fact that Psalm 34 is an acrostic psalm. That means in its original Hebrew, each verse begins with a consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and there's 22 verses in this psalm. That this psalm is for a crisis is clear by the psalm's uh, ascription and content. So the ascription at the top of the psalm says that it was written by David. And it's at a time when he was on the run because Saul was threatening to kill him. Initially, David sought refuge with a Philistine king, foolishly thinking that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. It didn't go well. And David resorted to feigning madness to get away. David seems to have learned something from this experience. He shares his wisdom in Psalm 34. And his wisdom is in essence this. Life is not to be lived running in fear from the likes of Saul or the Philistines. Rather, it is to be lived in the fear of the Lord. That is, in profound respect, reverence, and awe of him, worshiping him only, trusting him entirely, crying out to him, and seeking refuge in him. So a little application note here, friends. Next time you are facing a crisis, 
consider turning to Psalm 34, an ABC for a crisis. Or better yet, get to know this song, as Peter and his readers clearly did, to be ready for the crises, or dare I say, the persecution that will surely come our way. The verses that Peter quoted in this uh, in his letter are Psalm uh, 34, verses 12 to the beginning of 16, so 12 to 16a. But if you back up one verse to verse 11, take a look at verse 11, to see how David introduces the verses that Peter ended up quoting. David says, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So the wisdom David learned from suffering in a crisis, Peter commends to his readers who are suffering for righteousness' sake. While we're here in this psalm, I want to draw your attention to two other verses. Uh, I think they're on the very back of your bulletin, verses 19 and 20. They are, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. You may recognize verse 20. The New Testament says that this verse was fulfilled at the crucifixion. When the soldiers were ordered to take the bodies down from, from the crosses, um, they found that the, the two men crucified on either side of Jesus were still alive. The soldiers broke their legs so that they would no longer be able to push themselves up and breathe. Jesus, however, was already dead. The soldiers unwittingly fulfilled scripture, both in refraining from breaking any of his bones and by piercing his side instead. The blood and water that came out proved Jesus was indeed dead. They took his body down as it was. Not one of his bones was broken as Psalm 34, verse 20 says. Before verse 20, verse 19 says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Surely this was Jesus's experience in his passion and crucifixion. But then verse 19 goes on to say, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Thinking of Jesus, God the Father delivering him, did not mean that he would not die on the cross. But rather that despite all that his body endured, not one of his bones was broken. That God the Father sovereignly kept his body thus, points ahead to Jesus' vindication. When the Father first raises him and then 40 days later seats him, at his right hand in heaven. Peter, in, in quoting and alluding to Psalm 34 throughout his letter, is strengthening people who may indeed die 
in their fiery trials. Yet he maintains that they will be vindicated as their Lord Jesus, whom they follow, was vindicated. Now, returning to our passage, so turn back to page four of your bulletins. We're in verse 14. In the face of suffering for righteousness' sake, Peter, coming off his quote from Psalm 34, exhorts his readers to fear the Lord so that they need not fear anyone or anything else. He also exhorts them to be ready to explain the reason for their devotion to the Lord, why they persevere in hope. So Peter says in the second half of verse 14 and in verse 15, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So the text says, have no fear of them, those who persecute you. But the Greek uh, behind that translation literally says, don't be afraid of what they fear. That is, don't fear their gods. Instead, honor Christ the Lord as holy, which is another way for saying fear and worship him only. Always be prepared to make a defense. The Greek word translated defense is the word from which we get the word apologetics. Christian apologetics is the discipline of giving a reasoned explanation or defense for what Christians believe. So Peter is saying, always be ready. For when someone asks you to explain yourself as a Christian, Explain your reasons for following a suffering Messiah. Explain your reasons for hoping rather than fearing in the face of persecution. Explain your reasons for believing what others may see as nonsense. Verse 15 ends with the admonition to do this with gentleness and respect. The Greek is literally meekness and fear. Meekness is not weakness. It is strength under submission, submission to Christ our Lord. And fear is not fear of a persecutor or of an inquirer, but fear of the Lord. For Peter has just discouraged all other fears. Having said that, the translation gentleness and respect, it, these are great words to describe what it looks like to honor Christ in bearing witness to him with our words. It looks like caring for the one who is asking, whether they are friend, stranger, enemy, or bystander rather than just jumping to defend ourselves. Every questioner 
is a man or woman made in the image of God for whom Jesus Christ died. You are on holy ground answering even hostile questions about your faith. Friends, here is another application note. There is much more to be said about 1 Peter 3.15 and about apologetics. And at Christ the King, we are blessed to have Logan Gates, uh, who has years and years of experience in apologetics at the local, national, and even international levels. We are also blessed um, to have excellent expository sermons from Glenn week by week. And we are blessed to have the Logo series, which started this, this fall, uh, at which uh, Logan is one of the speakers together with Roger and David. So I encourage you to avail yourselves of opportunities to better know and be ready to explain your faith to others. In the final verses of this section, Peter generalizes from the witness of words to the witness of life, including especially the witness of suffering for righteousness sake. We are not only on holy ground when answering inquiries about our faith, but always. <laughs> because we are called to walk in the fear of the Lord at all times, bringing glory to him by pointing people to him. Verses 16 and 17 say we are to have a good conscience before God walking uprightly so that when we are slandered, those who revile our good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, then for doing evil. So that's part one, baptism by fire, following the example of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, part two. Um, we're looking at verses 18 to 22 under the title, Baptism by Water, United to the Body of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Baptism by water is a sacrament. That means it is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. The outward and visible sign in our adult full immersion baptisms today involves the immersion of Evan and the Duncan of Duncan. I just thought I'd scoop you, Glenn, on the dad joke. <laughs> we're we're going to, uh, these gentlemen are going to uh, go under the water in a tub that is, is, is just behind those, those curtains. But let me tell you something import, important about that tub of water. This tub back here, it's not a bath. It's a death. Verses 21 and 22 say of baptism that it's not about a removal of dirt from the body, but rather it's about an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. 
The inward and spiritual grace for which baptism is the outward and visible sign is being made a member of or being united to the body of Christ. This is what happens when we believe the gospel and turn to Jesus in repentance and faith. We are united to the body of Christ. We are united together with all the others down through the ages and around the globe who have trusted God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for their salvation. Being united to the body of Jesus Christ, we become beneficiaries of his saving work. His bodily death on the cross for our sins that were cutting us off from God. His bodily resurrection that proved that the cross worked and our sins are forgiven. And his bodily ascension to the right hand of God that paves the way for us to one day also be in God's presence and see him face to face. Immersion baptism acts out dying with Christ to our sins when you go under the water and rising with him to new life, coming out of the water, new life that extends from now to eternity. Verse 18 is one of the most compact yet complete statements in the New Testament describing the saving work of Jesus Christ. Peter has just said in the preceding verses that God's will for the followers of Jesus sometimes includes suffering for righteousness' sake. Peter now summarizes what God's will accomplished for us through the willingness of Jesus Christ to suffer for righteousness' sake. So verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered suffered and died once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. He was the righteous. We are the unrighteous. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Friends, the incarnate, sinless son of God, Jesus Christ, suffered and died once, for all sins, for all time. He is the righteous one who suffered in the place of us, the unrighteous ones, the just penalty incurred by our sins, so that in accordance with God's will, he might bring us to God. The God who in his love made us for eternal life with him, but who in his holiness could not abide our sin. All this was accomplished by Jesus Christ being put to death in the flesh at the crucifixion and made alive in the spirit at his resurrection with a new resurrection body. As the apostle Paul says of the resurrection of the dead in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What was sown is perishable. 
What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Jesus' resurrection body that he, he has forever <laughs> is a spiritual body that is also physical. Okay, friends, if you're keeping score, um, there are two verses I haven't talked about yet in this passage, verses 19 and 20. These are the verses which Martin Luther called, quote, a wonderful text, but also, quote, a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the Testament. After which he said he did not, quote, know for certainty just what Peter means. I, I wrote over 500 words about these verses, and then to spare you, I took them all out. <laughs> Instead, I'll just read the verses and then tell you very briefly how they tie into what I've already said. Beyond that, if you want to talk more, see me afterwards, or better yet, talk to Glenn. <laughs> So verses 19 and 20 say, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. All I want to say is it makes sense that the account of the flood and people being saved in Noah's Ark corresponds, as uh, verse 21 goes on to say, to the picture of salvation given us by baptism. Noah's Ark corresponds to the body of Christ. Being in the body of Christ, we are saved from judgment on our sin and brought safely through to new life. And baptism is the outward and visible sign of this salvation. So that's part two, baptism by water, united to the body of Jesus Christ, our Savior. In conclusion, we started out talking about suffering for righteousness sake as a baptism by fire. Jesus our Savior underwent a baptism by fire in order to bring us to God. We undergo a baptism by water as a sign that through repentance and faith, we are members of his body, united to him in his death and resurrection. And so we benefit from all he has done to bring us to God. Then as followers, of Jesus our Lord, we also may be called upon to undergo a baptism by fire, to suffer for righteousness' sake, not because we can add anything to what Jesus has accomplished by his suffering in bringing us or anyone else to God, but rather because our witness or our willingness 
to suffer for our association with him can be a powerful witness that brings others to him so that he can bring them to God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm -hmm.